And I'm mainly just really worried that they're going to like use AI to copy and paste uh, some sort of weird image of like me getting shot by like someone from Philadelphia. <laughs> just anyone from Philadelphia. <laughs> It could be Sean Hartman now. Like Donovan McNabb. Yeah. No, Donovan McNabb specifically. <laughs> Wouldn't it? Fly Eagles fly, Donovan McNabb killing Jake See, Watkins. When I try to type in killing Jake Watkins, it tells me that it can't It can't do that because that's... It can't be done. <laughs> the man is invincible. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, regional manager for the world-famous celebrity-endorsed chain of breakfast-only steakhouses, Charlie Pride's Kiss and Angus Good Morning. <laughs> I really want some dedicated listener to make a Wikipedia list of all of your eating establishments. <laughs> <laughs> That's honestly my only reason to become a famous podcaster is to have enough fans to make their own wiki for this show. That's really the only reason I'm hanging on. One sweet day. Whatever it takes. I'm co-host Jeremy. And since you guys won't let us run ads... And I'm still trying to get rich off this podcast. I I got us a sponsorship. Oh, who? We are the official cheap vinyl podcast of the Missoula Timberjacks. Okay. <laughs> Is there anything weird in the fine print on this one or just a basic sponsorship? Well, uh, I got to say they... They didn't have money to give me, so they just gave me season tickets. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Do they want us to do like 15 minutes of podcasting before every game? I think so. I All didn't right. read what they want. Okay. Well, let me know. I'm I'm ready and willing. I signed it, though. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, we didn't have any other competing offers, so take what we can get, I suppose. Yeah. Wow, we're just getting started here, and I've figured out both Sean's motivation for continuing to do the podcast as well as Jeremy's. <laughs> yeah, I love Pioneer League baseball. Yeah. Well, I am co-host Peter, and you don't have to call me Waylon Jennings, and you don't have to call me Charlie Pride, and you don't have to call me co-host Peter anymore, even though you're on my podcast side. Aw. <laughs> Amazing. I will stop calling you Waylon Jennings. <laughs> you know, I think I'm going to miss it, actually. Yeah. Scratch all that. <laughs> wow, Do we're in a silly mood today. Oh. Something must have uh, brought this upon us. Well, I can't imagine what it is because we have a very serious guest joining us today. A lecturer of geography and a good friend of the podcast, who, according to Barstool Sports, is a certified asshat. 
Welcome. But according to ratemyprofessor.com, fantastic lecturer. Welcome back to the program, Jake Watkins. <laughs> Much like the third uh, member of the, uh, the the third black member of the uh, Grand Ole Opry, uh, there's nothing I can do. I only want to be with you. <laughs> Shouts out to Darius Rucker. My goodness. A Hootie and the Blowfish reference. That was the (laughs) first two CDs I bought were Hootie and the Blowfish, Cracked Review, and Counting Crows. Oh, really? That sucks. That sucks so bad. (laughs) And the third was uh, an Adam Sandler stand-up special. (laughs) Maybe. I was like 10. Allegedly. You were 10? That'd be 1997. That's like three or four years after those albums came out. Maybe I was even younger. <laughs> I don't remember. Like 10 has like a plus or minus four-year range for me. I see. That makes sense. Well, Jake, good to have you back. Good to have this vibe back on the podcast. It truly feels like home at this point. All, all my boys back here. Right after the holidays. I'm so tired. Yeah, this is how we hang out nowadays. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, more or less. Yeah. Last time I was around Sean, we hung out in a different way. That involved a car wreck, but yeah, I'm still taking public <laughs> transportation. It's all Jake's fault. Oh, I, I have to be on the record once again saying I hate Philadelphia. Wow. Wow, I don't think we ever talked about that unfortunate incident on the, on the podcast, but... <laughs> well, it sounds like a perfect opportunity to breeze right past it and talk about the record we picked out today. <laughs> Look, Hall and Oates are great. Hall and Oates are great. I enjoyed being on that episode, but I hate Philadelphia. <laughs> That's a start. We can work with that. Who are we <laughs> talking about on this episode, though? Jake, do you know? Oh, uh, you're talking to me. Uh, yeah, we're talking about Charlie Pride. Uh, not only Charlie Pride, but we're talking about Charlie Pride in person. As in the time he played a show in Texas and recorded it. Yes, and released it in the year of our Lord, 1969. Right before things about got really big for Charlie Pride. Yeah, and that was the year after he recorded it, right? It was July of 68 that this was recorded. Correct. Recorded July of 1968 at the Panther Hall in Fort Worth, Texas. Just a tiny bit of context. This was recorded about three months after MLK's assassination. So quite a time to be the first rising black star in country music. Yeah. And about one month before the Democratic National Convention in Chicago and that whole explosion there. Yeah. What are you talking about, Peter? What happened then? We've talked about it before. Go back to our Phil Oaks episode. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm only 18. I I would like to say, uh, as a little caveat, uh, the first city outside of my hometown that I ever visited was Dallas, Fort Worth. And even as a nine-year-old, I was like, this place sucks. (laughs) Damn, hot takes. Here, we're going to talk about Texas a whole lot on this episode, win some new fans, and you're just out the gate, ruining it for us. I, I have no problem with Texas as a whole, but Dallas was a, there's a whole story there. We can move on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe we should listen to a song. Yeah. Why don't we move on to our first track? We're going to hear 
the opening song from this record, The Last Thing on My Mind, written by folk singer Tom Paxton and originally released in 1966, the Tom Paxton version, that is. Here we go. This is side A, track one, after the intro. A big hand for Charlie Pride. Thank you. I believe you. A lesson too late for the learning. Aider sand, Aider sand. In the wake of an eye, my soul is turning. In your hand, in your hand. Are you going away with the word of farewell? Will there be not a trace left behind? Well, I could have loved you better. Didn't mean to be unkind You know that was the last thing on my mind As we walk along my thoughts are tumbling Round and round, round and round Underneath our feet are subways rumbling Underground, underground Are you going away with no word of farewell? Will there be not a trace left behind? Well, I could have loved you better, didn't mean to be unkind. You know that was the last thing on my mind. You got reasons of plenty for going. This I know, this I know. It has been a while since we featured a live album on the podcast. It's really fun with that audience energy in there. Yeah, and this was a pretty sizable audience, too. I looked it up. Panther Hall was a recently converted bowling alley turned into a concert hall. (laughs) And there was about 2,500 people in attendance. I looked up some pictures online of Panther Hall back in the day and I honestly don't know how they fit 2,500 people in there. So this was a very packed show. Yeah. He says at some point that he doesn't see an empty seat in the house. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And you would imagine those stage lights are just beaming down on him. Hot as absolute sin. Yeah. Yeah. Summertime in Texas. When I listen through this record, it sounds like the audience is just like super hyped on what he's doing. And it sounds like the energy is great. But from what I understand, the energy uh, from the audience was actually somewhat subdued because the producer kept stopping the concert in between songs to like make adjustments to the recording and make sure that the audio was perfect. But it kind of like was pissing people off a little bit in the audience. But that's just, again, the testament to Charlie Pride and his talent with that people were still happy. <laughs> One of my takeaways from this was like, it is so well mixed for a live album. Like it, it everything is more or less pretty standard the entire way through. And, uh, you know, big ups to that producer. Jack yeah. Clement. Yeah. Cowboy Jack Clement. Yeehaw. Yep. Yep. He had worked for son early on. It was actually him who brought on Jerry Lee Lewis while Sam Phillips was on vacation. 
Yeah, and continued to be a major player post-Sun. Discovered a lot of talent. Was uh, a guy who was kind of pushing to make Nashville a little bit more progressive in the kind of music that it was making and the time, the kind of stars that were coming up. Yeah, yeah. which uh, Charlie Pride, a black country star, on the precipice of fame here, correct? I mean, he's obviously already quite well-known. But I, I don't know if he's quite at like superstar level at this point that this is recorded. Yeah, I wrote like a little context of where Charlie Pride is at real quick, just to give you an idea before we go into the full bio later on. But at the time of recording this album, Charlie Pride was 34 years old. Over the previous year and a half, he had just racked up five top 10 country music singles in a row after nearly a decade of fruitless labor in the music business. So yeah, this album is the sound of an unlikely and exciting new star backed by Nashville session pros and riding a wave that has not even begun to peak yet. I think that's uh, kind of my favorite thing about this record is, uh, I mean, the songs he chose to play were very indicative of the time and like the point in which country music was becoming sexy i would i was like maybe go as far as to say in which like i mean we'll get into some of the other songs that he chose for this album l- later but um i mean very much like uh you know not the standard i'm a cowboy here's still guitar sort of bits Something that jumped out at me in first listening to this is that I don't think we're featuring any of them today, but several of the cuts on here are ones that Graham Parsons of the Flying Burrito Brothers recorded right around the same time. So I just, yeah, I don't know if he may, maybe he heard this record and, but you know, Graham was also like an encyclopedia of country music. So he likely knew them from multiple sources, but it really jumped out at me that, uh, two, very different, but in a way progressive voices in country would have been performing similar material around the same time. Yeah. And Charlie Pride was definitely a scholar of country music as well. And you can look at the song selections here, you know, he's not just coming into this and playing whatever music is popular at the time. There's covers from way back. There's people that have been an influence on him since he was a little boy. You know, he's, He's in this for real. Like, you know, he's been a lifelong country music fan. Yeah, certainly. And like he kind of sticks to like a particular genre, like as he's playing out this live set, which I mean, I, I, Peter or I don't know, maybe even Jeremy, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, I don't think there's any like banjo on this. There's like not any mandolin on this. Like it's true country yeah i was surprised listening back to this i hadn't listened to charlie pride in a minute and kind of forgot like how straightforward in my mind it's like 70s country that even though this is before that yeah and the sound most people would probably associate with is a little bit shinier than this. I mean, he was on the forefront of what people were calling the... the. It's very Bakersfield. Well, yeah, and after this, he was kind of on the forefront of what people were calling the countrypolitan sound. Like, it gets a little smoother, but here in the tail end of the 60s and the beginning of his career, it's definitely got more of that Bakersfield, high-energy, kind of rock-oriented sound, a little edgier. Yeah. 
my, when I, I was talking to my dad over Christmas and I was like, yeah, you know, I'm going back on my buddy Sean's podcast, uh, talk about this. You know, my dad's a very good old Southern boy. And he goes, Jake, I think most of me and my friends all have the memory of, uh, learning that Charlie Pride was black. And I was like, was that a bad thing? And he was like, no, absolutely not. We were just surprised. <laughs> a lot of people were surprised from what I understand. Yeah. 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 He, he tells some anecdotes along those lines throughout this performance. And, yeah. And I had seen his first show in Detroit he ever played. They announced him and everybody was clapping and then he walked out and he's black and the crowd just like collectively gasped and then started <laughs> clapping again once he started singing yeah he developed this method of like he would come on stage people would be shocked and probably for at least the first few years of his career because you got to imagine most people hearing his music are either buying 45s without a picture sleeve or hearing it on the radio so a huge portion of his audience until they saw him live wouldn't know. I mean, you know, there's not social media to spread this information any faster, but yeah, he had this method where he would come on stage, people would get silent and then he would make one of like a handful of jokes that he had on deck to just quickly diffuse the situation, get people laughing. And before it died down, he would just fire into the first song. And by the time he's singing, it's just undeniable. <laughs> like it, it would seem that, Oftentimes, even the most hardened racist was like, well, I still don't like black people, but this guy can sing. <laughs> this is a great showcase for his voice at several points on this record. And I will say that after spending a lot of time with this album and then listening to some of his studio, the polished studio recordings, I, I almost kind of prefer this live album. <laughs> yeah, I I enjoy the polished sound quite a bit but for different reasons and yeah there's something special on this record it doesn't get talked about a lot but the few reviews you can find online the people that know this record really love it it holds a special place in a lot of people's hearts and i've seen several arguments of people saying that this deserves to be talked about amongst the great live country albums if not live albums in general from this time period mm -hmm. yeah definitely I was only vaguely familiar with Charlie Pride. You know, I, I knew who he was. I listened to his music casually, uh, but I've never really sat down and dedicated myself to listening to a, an entire set of his songs, and I'll be doing more of that. Same. I mean, this was someone that I picked because it's been in the back of my mind of wanting to learn more about Charlie Pride. You know, the guy I've seen the records around a ton. I figured there had to be a story there, and wanted to figure out what the good records are from this guy which it turns out he's got just a mountain of really really good records and we'll just call this a great place to start with this one it it is my favorite kind of country and it makes me mad that uh, some guy from uh from michigan was the one that turned me on to it <laughs> yeah, that's the breaks <laughs> what can you do would that be sean yes Master recommender. Watch out what you say. Sean doesn't identify as a Michigander anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I I will always view him as a Michigander because otherwise, you know, we, we've already, I've already said all I want to say about Philadelphia. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, 
hate it. I hate that place. Well, I was born in Michigan, so I suppose I'll take that. Yeah. You guys want to hear another song? Absolutely. One of Charlie Pride's biggest influences and one of the biggest influences for virtually every country musician at this time was the great Hank Williams. The most famous Hank Williams cover that he does on this record, we're not going to play because it's <laughs> pretty racist. What? We can... Why, Sean? Why, Sean? Yeah. Do we want to talk about that now or later? Yeah. Kalisha, the song that Hank Williams actually wrote, which if you're not familiar at best is a uh, racist novelty song that hasn't aged well and at worst is horribly offensive. <laughs> One of the prime influences for Tim McGraw's Indian Outlaw that he would record in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, which is way, in many ways, way worse. It's re- recorded by many people. Unfortunately, Kalijah is a great showcase for his voice. He hits some powerful yeah, notes he in there. sings that so good. Yeah. <laughs> he fucking nails it. Yeah. And it's the song that I would get stuck in my head more than like any other on this record, even though I don't want it to happen. <laughs> and it makes sense why people loved it. It's a weird arrangement. It's something different than what you'd normally hear. It's a great vehicle for his incredible vocals, but we are not going to listen to it on this episode. Instead, we're going to hear Charlie Pride's version of the classic song Love Sick Blues, which was not written by Hank Williams, but he was the one that popularized it. This was originally a Tin Pan Alley song from the 1920s. All right, let's hear it. It's side one, track six. Feeling full of blues Oh Lord, since my baby said goodbye Oh Lord, I don't know what to do All I do is sit inside Why, oh Lord, that last long day She said goodbye Dear Lord, I thought I would cry She'll do me, she'll do you She got the kind of loving and Lord, I love to hear But when she called me sweet And I, I, I Such a beautiful dream I get to think it all over I lost my heart, it seems I've grown so used to you somehow Oh, well, I'm nobody Sugar daddy now And I'm a lonesome I got the love sick blues. Well, I'm in love, I'm in love with a beautiful gal. Say, what's the matter with me? Well, I'm in love, I'm in love with a beautiful gal. But she don't care about me. Oh, Lord, I tried and I tried to keep her satisfied with that gal. So how do you guys feel about yodeling? I, uh... The yodel is something that is very strange to me, but also very comforting to me. Like, growing up in East Tennessee, I heard a lot of, like, the little yodel sort of deal. And uh, when I was, I don't know, by the time I was, like, 14, 15, I, I was, like, 
I hate country music. Uh, like, I, <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, so like Isaac Brock in Modest Mouse does like a little bit of a like just pitches up really fast, and I think it's mm-hmm. there's a rednecky thing running throughout a lot of their stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And then like one of my favorite documentaries is called The Angus Blues. And it's about a uh, blues musician in New Orleans who listened to uh, Tuvan throat singing and then would eventually go to, I guess it was Mongolia, maybe or at the very, very least, like Southwest or Southeast Russia, kind of did the same sort of Tuvan throat singing thing. But his whole thing was like, yeah, I kind of learned how to do this by listening to the yodel of country music. So I love it. Like it's, it's, I really love it. It's very comforting to me. Yeah. It's something I've kind of always appreciated. I know it turns a lot of people off really quickly and can just feel goofy to the point that they just never want to hear it. And then you listen, you hear a lot of people talk shit about yodeling. You know, I hate banjos. I hate yodeling, etc. But I don't know. There's something kind of primal and beautiful about it. And man, Charlie pride sure does a great job he's an amazing yeah. singer and with that baritone you wouldn't listen to his songs and think i bet that dude has a killer yodel but sure enough my dad can still do it like my dad can do the yodel pretty well and he's like man charlie pride could sure do the yodel <laughs> amen jeremy who was that caller on the best show for years, the best show with Tom Sharpling was Avalanche Bob. Yeah, Avalanche Bob. Yeah. <laughs> he 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 did a, a good yodel, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> He's the first one that came to mind when we were talking about this. <laughs> oh, interesting. My mind went to the same place as Jake during the break. He's like, I love yodeling except that kid in the Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> he said he said that. I didn't understand that. I I, I I didn't. You guys were laughing while we were listening to that song. I I, I didn't get that. It's an internet meme. Oh thing. no! No wonder I didn't get it. Yeah, I'm I old. don't want to speak ill of him so, so that you all don't get sued. But uh, you know, fuck that kid. <laughs> <laughs> you might have to cut that out. I'm sorry. Well, on that note, would you guys like to learn where Charlie Pride got his yodel from? Yes. Yes. Well, he was born on March 18th, 1934 in Sledge, Mississippi. He was the fourth of 11 children. His family were sharecroppers. Received his first guitar from Mail Order Catalog at the age of 14. Taught himself how to play. His older brother, Mark, was a professional baseball player with the Negro Leagues. And young Charlie dreamed of doing the same. So instead of pursuing the music career at first, in 1952, he began a promising baseball career. In 1953, he signed a contract with the Boise Yankees, who were a farm team for the New York Yankees. It was looking like he was maybe going to actually get on the real Yankees. And then he had an injury that prevented him from climbing the ranks partway through the season. So I uh, that, that was maybe one of the more fascinating parts of me because um, I have like a cousin, like he, he is long dead, but who outbatted Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and then had a, an injury that I think what I read about like Charlie Pride's injury was 
by today's standards, very fixable. But uh, back in the day, you know, it wasn't the same. And so botched surgery, et cetera, et cetera, you're no longer able to play at the professional level. And uh, I think that's kind of what happened to Charlie. Yeah, it's, it seems that the injury, it didn't prevent him from playing. It just made him not quite as good as he had been at one point. He was a right-handed pitcher, and I think it was something along the lines of like what we would now call Tommy John surgery. Yeah, when I was reading about him in the Wikipedia, I, I started to wonder if I had gone to the wrong Charlie Pride, because there was a lot of focus <laughs> on his baseball career. I was right there with it, Peter. The first half of the bio, it goes into so much details. Like, and then this team, and then he was on this team, which was a fourth-string farm team for this team. It's like, oh my god. <laughs> then I started seeing statistics. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I definitely had the same moment where I was like, what? <laughs> he played baseball? And for a while, too. Like, it didn't just end there. I should also note that he kept playing music even during the baseball career, even before he was trying to make a living doing it at all. He would often be the guy playing and singing during long bus rides to games. And he was just known as, like, the the baseball player that was a surprisingly good singer. Play us a tune, Charlie. Yeah. Uh, He was drafted into the army in 1956 where he continued to play baseball during his two year term. When he got out, he rejoined the Negro leagues in 1958, but his injury still hindered his throwing arm. In 1958, he also visited sun studios and recorded a few songs that to my knowledge went unreleased by 1960. He was playing for a semi-pro team in Montana called the East Helena Smelterites and also working at the lead smelting factory that sponsored the team. For several years, something like five, maybe six years, he was working long, dangerous factory shifts, shoveling hot coal and just like getting terrible burns all the time. At one point, he broke his ankle during a factory shift. But through all this, he's still playing semi-pro baseball on the weekends. In fact, by this point, he was also getting paid double at games to sing for 15 minutes before the game started. And then in his tons of free time, he would also pick up whatever gigs he could find at dive bars. During one of these bar gigs, Charlie was noticed by country stars Red Sovine and Red Foley. And they encouraged him to try heading to Nashville and seeing if he could make a career out of it. Red Foley is the the trucking guy, right? I think that's Red Simpson. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Close, Jeremy. No cigar. Uh, Red Sovine was also a, a trucking guy. There was a few truck song guys. It was a whole thing at one point. <laughs> There's a lot of money in the country field for, for trucks, I think. I suspect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sean, did you read the quote that, uh, like, when he moved to Montana, that was like, we accept everyone that comes here, but good luck leaving here. And for some reason, that, like, just struck me as so bleak. Yeah, it's ominous. <laughs> yeah, very ominous. It's like, I don't know, Montana's fine, but... Yeah, Charlie, he, anytime he talked about Montana in interviews that I heard, he had nothing but praise for the place, and his... Uh, his like short rundown of his time there was that like there was 
very inhospitable at first. People were not accepting, but once he had like lived there for a while, they accepted him. And by the time he was ready to leave, everyone was trying to convince him to stay. But it, it sounds like uh, it was very hard for him at first. I mean, Montana's like, that's such a cowboy place to be. And I think Charlie is coming from a place of the most cowboy point of country music. So it would kind of make sense. Yeah. I mean, his, his producer's nickname on this record is cowboy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was just going to say, speaking of cowboy, when Charlie first went to Nashville, one of the guys he met was cowboy Jack Clements. Now I'm, I feel like there's a very good chance he first met Jack Clements at sun studios in 1958. Since we mentioned that Jack Clements worked there. So it's very possible that Jack was maybe one of the few connections in Nashville that he looked up first when he came to town. But either way, Jack Clements was all about trying to get Charlie Pride to make it somehow. So he helped produce some demos for him so he could shop him around. And in 1966, a little guy by the name of Chet Atkins heard the Charlie Pride demo that Jack Clements had produced. And he was also so impressed that he made it his mission to get Charlie Pride signed. He convinced the label executives at RCA to, quote, take a chance and let the music speak for itself. I'm also very mad you've never invited me on for a Chet Atkins record because I I know Chet Atkins better than I know most country stars. Interesting. We did like a half Chet Atkins record. I know. I listened to it. <laughs> I'm saying he's he's due for another one. We could definitely dive into some more Chet. So don't rule it out. All right. Charlie's first singles were issued without a promo picture, and he was billed as Country Charlie Pride, which added to the fan confusion of not realizing that he was a black man when they would see him in concert. As we mentioned, many early concerts would quickly go from ecstatic cheering when they would announce country Charlie pride is coming to the stage. And then they would instantly quiet down to a pin drop. As soon as they saw a black man walk on the stage to sing these country songs that they'd only heard on the radio or on 45 up until this point. That's uh that's exactly like the story my dad told me of, uh, so he listened to Charlie pride going up and it, his grandfather, my great grandfather had Charlie pride records just spinning all the time. And uh, at one point, my dad like looked at a record and was like, Batball, you know, are you aware? And I think um, my great grandfather was not a particularly racist man, even by, you know, Southern standards. Uh, and he was just like, yeah, boy, he can sing. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be the general narrative. Charlie Pride, as you can imagine, like the number one thing he was always asked about in interviews throughout his life was to like talk about the racism that he encountered, which I, I really get the vibe that that was something of great frustration to him, because honestly, the first thing that should be talked about is how he's one of the greatest country singers of all time, period. But he would kind of go back and forth between talking about like you know, combating racism being something that was really important to him. And sometimes he would just kind of brush it off and be like, well, I didn't really encounter that much. People just like, they'd be a little rude at first. They'd hear me sing and it was all over. So, I mean, the truth has to be somewhere in the middle. It could not have been easy dealing with the amount of abuse that 
he had to deal with to try and become a country star at this point or any point. But yeah, it just over and over again, the talent was so undeniable that people just like, they heard him and just all the, all the preconceived notions seemed to go out the window. They just wanted to keep hearing Charlie pride sing some more. I, I do think that is like maybe one of the, uh, like simultaneously like most uplifting but like bleakest points is like he had to sound like Conway Twitty in order to really make it and I think that's you know he he succeeded and I think he was truly passionate about the sound that he made but I don't think white people would have accepted him otherwise if he did not sound like Conway Twitty yeah, and I don't think that he's trying to sound anything other than his natural self. I mean, on this record, in between one of the songs, he talks about how he often gets questions of, how come you don't sound the way you're supposed to sound? And he's like, this is just how I've been singing my entire life. I mean, I don't think the baritone was there at age five when he said he started singing, but uh, yeah, it's just very natural for him. This is just what he does. And part of that was his upbringing. I saw and heard in an interview that he talked about his father specifically did not want him to play any blues music when he was learning music because he considered that to be an inferior style of music and not suitable for good company <laughs> and encouraged his son to instead learn the country and folk songs. Well, I think it's time that we, if they're not already convinced, we should convince our listeners that this is one of the all-time great country voices. What did you have next as far as song selections planned. Jake, you want to set this one up? This was your pick from the album. We're going to hear Crystal Chandeliers. Yeah, I really love this one because this is like the point in which country music stars are acknowledging, like, oh, yeah, we're stars in the sense that we are around wealthy people, perhaps. And it is just so antithetical to the modern country of, I live on dirt roads and I drive a truck and uh, it, it really made me happy when I was listening to it. So uh, yeah, great song. Let me give you a little history on this song before we hear it. It was written by a guy named Ted Harris. Well, Lottie doll <laughs> written by Ted Harris, who was a country music DJ and songwriter who worked for Hank Snow's silver star publishing, where he wrote hits for many classic country stars this song was actually never released as a single, and yet Charlie's version is by far the most popular. It was originally a minor hit for a guy named Carl Ballou in 1965, and then Charlie originally covered it on his 1967 album, The Country Way. The album reached number one on the Billboard album country charts, and people just really latched onto this album cut of his from it, and it became a song very deeply associated with him went on to become a country music standard covered by many, many people. Uh, RCA re-released it on 45 in 1972 when Charlie's record sales were at their all-time highest, but it was officially never actually a single. So here's the live version of Crystal Chandeliers. This is side B, track five. Oh, the crystal chandeliers line up the paintings on your wall The marble statuettes are standing stately in the hall But will the timely crowd that had you laughing loud help you dry your tears Is it when the new words off of your crystal 
handled it I never did fit in too well with folks you knew And it's plain to see that the likes of me don't fit with you So you traded me for the gaiety of the well-to-do And you turned away from the love I offered you All oh, the crystal chandeliers light up the paintings on your wall The marble statuettes are standing stately in the hall But will the timely crowd that has you laughing loud help you dry your tears? That when the new words off of your crystal chandelier I see your picture in the news most every day That you're the chosen girl of the social world So the story say Said but a paper smile only lasts a while Then it fades away I, uh really like this song because I think it's a kind of a sentiment of that time period in which, you know, again, like famous people, regardless of like the perception is being around really wealthy people and even fairly well-known musicians like Charlie Pride might see crystal chandeliers or be going to uh, various parties and being like, damn, this is wild. I think something I really like took away from this record was the lack of rhyming, which I kind of really like. The third track is not the rhyming sort of lazy sort of country music that we like eventually go on to like think about. It's just really poetic. And that was what I took that this song in particular is what I took away as like being the most poetic. Now, none of the songs on this album are Charlie Pride originals. Did he write a, a lot or was he more covering others material? He was definitely more known as a interpreter of other people's music. But he was also known as like one of the best interpreters of other people's music. He had a great way of making a song his own and injecting a lot of interesting rhythm into his vocal delivery. But going back to what Jake said, I kind of felt like a lot of his song choices definitely seemed to favor more lyrical and poetic songs. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why I just I feel like even though he's pulling from a wide range of sources here, it feels like a pretty united theme throughout. It feels like it's coming from the same voice or perspective. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's a, it's a deeply sad album uh, when you, I mean, it, it, it's at the uh, sort of the golden age of like sad country songs. So I think it's a, it's not a particularly uplifting album by any means. And Charlie, we should also mention later in life, said that he has long struggled with depression. Mm-hmm. So, which, I mean, he's having to put on a smiling face every night and pretend to be this happy guy in the face of all the bullshit he's dealing with. So, I mean, 
not easy. And it would make sense that he would favor a lot of kind of sadder songs throughout his career. Yeah, I watched an interview, an old interview with him. And in the interview, he refers to it as manic depressive, but it's what we would call bipolar today. He talked about... Uh, one of my brethren. Yeah. <laughs> as someone that also has bipolar disorder. <laughs> well, he talked about how he's willing to talk about it openly, but he knows lots of other artists who are also struggling with it That and that time period like wouldn't talk about it he mentions in the interview people will call you crazy mm -hmm. and don't didn't really have the framework for it back then that we do nowadays i i just really enjoyed like how many songs he plays in which he's like i think it's also um uh how do i want to put this uh it, it's a lot of the songs that he chooses to play are like uh, acknowledging like maybe I'm not the best partner, and so you left me. I, that that's like one of my favorite kind of songs. Yeah, yeah that that pops up again and again in this set. <laughs> so I'm gonna go ahead and cap off the bio. Once Charlie Pride really got started with his career after the session with Chet Atkins, it kind of took off pretty quick. He had maybe two or three singles that didn't go anywhere. And then in late 1966, he had his first big hit with the song Just Between You and Me, which you can hear on this record, but we're not featuring one of the clips. And then after that, it was just hit after hit for this guy for so long. Uh, his best-selling single was 1971's Kiss an Angel Good Morning. Mm -hmm. Altogether, Charlie Pride had 52 top 10 hits on the U.S. country singles chart. 30 of those went to number one. This whole live album was uh, like number two for a while on like just the general pop charts, right? Yeah, yeah. His album sales were great and his single sales. Like with, uh, with Kiss and Angel Good Morning, he was like one of the few country guys that got real crossover success too. That was a song that you could hear on pop radio at that point too. Yeah, isn't he second to Elvis for hits in the 70s or, or some... Yes. <laughs> uh, at, at the yes. height of his fame, there was only one artist on RCA that outsold him, and that was Elvis. That's okay. It's our, on RCA. Okay. Yep. Which was yeah. a pretty I, massive label. So that's still saying a lot. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. As Jake referenced in his intro, Charlie Pride was the second black artist to be given a membership to the Grand Old Opry. The first was DeFord Bailey in the 30s or 40s, and they didn't even give Charlie a membership until the 90s, which then shattered that glass ceiling and opened the way for one more black artist since then, Darius Rucker and no one else. I only want to be with you. I'm glad that that's your go-to and not wagon wheel. <laughs> <laughs> If I have to hear someone scream Johnson City, Tennessee one more time, I will bleep this part out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Charlie Pride was the first artist of any race to win Male Vocalist of the Year two years in a row at the CMAs, and he was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame in the year 2000. Unfortunately, Charlie is no longer with us. He performed at the CMAs in November of 2020, and then died the following month from complications due to COVID. 
He was aged 86. According to his Wikipedia, it said that he played the CMAs under the understanding that they were following all precautions, but then that ended up not being the case. So hard to say where exactly it was uh, contracted, obviously, but all fingers seem to point. But legally, we're required to tell you that the CMAs killed Charlie Pride. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That makes me so goddamn mad. Blake Shelton, is this your fault? (laughs) And he was still going pretty strong, too. He was still putting out records. He was still performing. He was in great shape. He had years left on his career. It's very unfortunate. Yeah, he was like John Prine, one of those people that it's like, oh, so glad we still have him with us. And then COVID came along. Yep. It makes me absolutely livid that Henry Kissinger outlived him. (laughs) It's just not fair. Real quick, I'm going to run down the players on this record, and then uh, we'll see what happens after that. On pedal, steel, guitar, and the band leader of the group, Lloyd Green, who was present on the majority of Pride's early material and also played on the album Sweethearts of the Rodeo by the Birds right around that time. With Graham Parsons. Mm Mm-hmm. You got Chip Young on rhythm guitar, who had recently played on Nancy Sinatra's Country My Way, along with a few other people from this band. You have Jerry Carrigan on drums, played on multiple Charlie Pride albums, was also a regular player with Lou Reed, Lester Flatt, Chris Christofferson, among many others. He played on Border Lord, the Christofferson record that we covered Madison Jr. Husky on bass, played on a handful of Charlie Pride records, also played with Jerry Reed, Waylon Jennings, Merle Haggard, and many others. David Briggs on piano. He is not the David Briggs from Crazy Horse. Instead, he is the country musician who recorded with Brenda Lee, Chris Christofferson, Area Code 615. You can hear him on Buffy St. Marie's Moonshot album and Willie Nelson's Shotgun Willie. Yeah, we've talked about the multiple David Briggs that are out there before. (laughs) There's a handful. And then sitting in on this gig, not part of the regular band, you have Johnny Patterson on lead guitar, who was a Dallas local and former lead guitarist for legendary country swing musician Bob Wills. If this watch on my wrist is correct, that means it's time for Sean to recommend us a few albums. Well, thankfully, we synchronized our watches, and mine's saying the same thing, so let's do that. Okay, let's do it. You guys always find a way to keep this fresh, (laughs) the way we introduce this segment. (laughs) That's what we do. So, I guess, if I'm going to recommend some albums, there's a few different ways we can go. It kind of depends on what you like about this record. If you are the kind of person who likes this record because it's an underappreciated live country album from 1969 called In Person and recorded by a legendary vocalist who does some unexpectedly good yodeling, then I would recommend Wanda Jackson, In Person, from 1969. Ooh, yeah. I've been getting into Wanda Jackson's music lately. Stunningly similar pick. Well done. Thank you. (laughs) And then if you are looking for maybe one of the musicians who is a big influence, but still working at this point, I would recommend a classic album from the great Ernest Tubb, 
another baritone country singer who, if you listen to him, it's, it becomes pretty obvious that Charlie Pride was a big fan. I'm recommending his album, The Daddy of Them All, from 1957. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure that uh, Charlie Pride knew of Ernest Tubb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it's some of the ways that he phrases things sound like a definite Ernest Tubb influence. He's great. The Texas Troubadour. Yeah, that's the one. Waltzing across Texas. Last recommendation, an album that we've featured before and is a good example of the more countrypolitan sounds that Charlie Pride would be later embracing. Talking about Ray Price for the good times from 1970. Ooh, that album's so good. Sean, am I allowed to give my uh, buy recommendation as well? Please do. Okay. If you wanted to listen to a band that came about by playing baseball, Taster by the band Howdy, because they both grew up playing baseball together in Texas. Is that a country band from the 60s or 70s? Absolutely not. They're a slowcore band from like the 2010s. <laughs> Yeah, we we as we often recommend a lot of slowcore from the 2010s. Hey, I've been told that's big with Gen Z these days. So. I I believe it. It's slowcore's had quite the revival the last decade. Look, the the lead singer was a was a four star recruit to the University of Texas, and he quit playing baseball. He was a pitcher too, just to play in the band Howdy. All right. Yeah. So if the thing that you liked most about this was that. Charlie Pride was a former athlete. <laughs> I recommend yeah, the, exactly. the band Howdy or also the musicians Johnny Mathis or Chris Christofferson. There we go, buddy. I feel the need to point out that we had a slowcore, a legend, as a guest on the podcast, talking about Les Paul and Chet Atkins. Chris Brokaw came on and talked yeah. to us about that. So we, we should be picking up with Gen Z's. Any day now, when they discover that episode, <laughs> I, I do pitch you all to my class pretty frequently. So, oh, well, you'll get the Gen Zs in here eventually. <laughs> well, speaking of you pitching and not related to baseball, do you have anything that you want to pitch for our listeners to check out? That things you do that are available out there on the web or beyond, Jake. I teach college. Uh, I'm the vocalist in a band called Cave Deco. Uh, my band, Tall Papa, is also about to put out something new. Also, sometimes if you want to sleep real good and you want to hear some, as what Sean would call, really fucking boring music, Dead Man's Lifestyle also exists. When did I say that? So many times. So many times. Wow. Well, I've changed, Jake. I do a New Age radio show now. I'm all about boring music. <laughs> Listen to our episode about Paul Horn. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you, Jake. What song did you want to close on for this episode on Charlie Pride? Well, uh, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Peter, because I have a, a caveat to go on. I would like to close out on Cotton Fields, which is, I feel like, a song that really gives a lot of context to uh, Charlie Pride growing up in Mississippi and the work he did. However, the Beach Boys covered it, and it's uh, really weird. Really, really weird, because I think it's a song that is uh, 
maybe not for Brian Wilson in California to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're more, they, they did well talking about surfing and the beach and cars. It also is literally, I, I swear to God, in the same like cadence of heroes and villains. And, uh, I don't think that, uh, talking about working in cotton fields uh, should have been recreated in that way. But yeah, this is getting into some blues hammer territory. (laughs) Absolutely. I think lead belly wrote this song. So yeah, he sure did. Yeah. And we're going to hear a little spoken word intro from Charlie pride on this one as well, where he kind of personalizes it a little bit. And I've seen him do, different variations on this story and different concert footage, but he talks about how this song is important to him because he lived it. He was there working in the cotton fields as a sharecropper as a little kid and doesn't want to go back. So this is cotton fields. This is the last song on side two. Thanks everybody for listening. I'm your host, Sean Hartman. I am also your host, Jeremy Ruggles. I as well. am your host, Peter cook. My name's Jake Watkins. Take Geo 344 at University of Tennessee, Knoxville, if you want. (laughs) (laughs) We can talk a lot about Palestine. Don't get me in trouble. Oh, I tell you, I'm uh, a little bit serious about this one. I like this number, and I like to do it on all of my shows. And I'll tell you the reason why. For one, it's a good song. And for a couple of three reasons, it reminds me of what I don't ever want to go back to doing. Because it hurt my fingers and my back and my knees. And that's why when I go on stage, I try to sing as best I can, because I don't ever want to go back to doing it anymore. It's in E, and it goes like this. When I was a little bitty baby, my mommy would rock me in the parade. In them old cotton fields back at home. When I was a little bitty baby, my mommy would rock me in the grave in them old cotton fields back home. Well, I went to them cotton bowls to get a rock like you can't pick a very much cotton in them old cotton fields back home. Yes, it was down in Louisiana, just about a mile from a Texas camp in them old. Hot feel back, no one back. Girl, when I was a little bitty baby, my mommy would rock me in the parade. Them move. Cotton fields back at home. Have a good time.